Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to season five of the Islamic History Podcast. I'm your host, Mutaki Ismail. In this series, we are discussing the events of World War I that led to the partition of the Ottoman Empire. This is episode 523, Aqaba and Gaza. Before we get into the episode, let's do a brief recap of where we are so far. By the end of 1916, it is clear the Arab revolt will fail without significant British support. The British decide to investigate using the Arabs as a guerrilla force to distract the Ottomans. Meanwhile, the British make significant advances in the Middle East. They capture the Sinai Peninsula in February 1917 and Baghdad in March 1917. Now, less than 30 miles from Gaza, the British are preparing to invade Palestine. And with that, let's begin our discussion of the stalemate in Gaza. Trenches and Tanks World War I is primarily known for the extensive use of trench warfare by all sides. When somebody mentions fighting in the First World War, young men huddled in trenches is the most common visual image. Trenches have been used for military purposes for centuries. Ghazwatul Khandaq, or the Battle of the Trench, is one of the most famous battles of the early Islamic period. This battle was fought in Medina in 627 CE between the Muslim community, led by Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and a coalition of pagan Arab and Jewish tribes. The coalition, which vastly outnumbered the Muslim forces, intended to invade Medina. However, the Muslims of Medina had dug a trench that blocked the invaders. To hear the full story of the Battle of the Trench, subscribe to the Prophet Muhammad podcast. But the Muslims were not the first to use trenches in warfare. Prophet Muhammad actually got the idea from Salman, his Persian companion. Salman had once been a soldier in the Persian military and had seen trenches used before. Prophet Muhammad used the trench as a defensive measure to keep his enemies out, kind of like a wall built downwards instead of upwards. In World War I, trenches were more than just a defensive measure. They were also the soldiers' living quarters on the front line. The first use of trenches in the Great War came in mid-September 1914. After making significant advances deep into France, the Germans were finally halted at the Battle of the Marne. With their momentum spent, the British and French militaries pushed the Germans back another 40 miles. The Germans finally stopped retreating and dug simple trenches along the Aisne River in northeastern France. They then set up their machine guns and artillery and cut down the advancing Allied troops. Realizing the futility of attacking the entrenched Germans, the Allies also dug their own trenches, and thus began four years of brutal stalemate. In time, the trenches became more sophisticated. They went deeper underground and were reinforced with wooden beams and sandbags. German trenches were relatively luxurious since they piped in fresh water and had working toilets and electricity. The Allied trenches were barely livable. 
Since they were usually on lower ground, Allied trenches suffered more from water runoff, often leaving them full of mud. This was made worse by the obvious sanitation problems that came with hundreds of men living and dying together in a small space. In addition to the trenches, both sides made extensive use of barbed wire. The area between the opposing trenches, called No Man's Land, was covered in miles of razor-sharp barbed wire meant to halt infantry charges. And as we've seen in previous episodes, the British tried unsuccessfully to destroy the barbed wire with their artillery. This desire to cross no man's land led to the development of combined arms in modern warfare. Combined arms is the coordinated use of infantry, armored cavalry, artillery, and military engineers. Tanks, developed as a way to counter both the barbed wire and the trenches, were a step in the process towards combined arms. Both sides used armored vehicles in the early stages of the war. However, these were often wheeled vehicles that had a hard time navigating through rough terrain and were useless against trenches. The British were the first to implement the continuous caterpillar track that was already in use with farming tractors. Debuting in September 1916, the Mark I was the first true tank to see action in the war. Large, slow, and prone to malfunction, the Mark I could be unreliable on the battlefield. Nonetheless, it frightened the German infantry and proved to the British that this tank idea had potential. The French were the first to introduce the rotating turret. After several failed starts, the French introduced the Renault FT light tank in 1917. When American soldiers began arriving later that year, they had to use the French Renault FT since the United States lagged well behind in tank warfare. The Germans did not make much use of tanks during the First World War. The only German tank to see combat was the A7V Sturmpanzerwagen. These large behemoths were introduced late in the war and required a crew of 18 men. By that stage of the war, German infrastructure and manufacturing capacity was struggling and they were not able to focus on further tank development. The Ottomans did not use any tanks during the war. However, they did face British tanks in the Middle East, which we'll discuss later in this episode. The War in the Middle East By the middle of 1917, there were three major campaigns taking place in the Middle East. There was the Mesopotamian campaign, which began when the British invaded Iraq through the Shatul Arab. The first phase of this campaign ended with a British surrender at the fortress of Kutalamada in April 1916. This was discussed in episode 17 of this series. In December 1916, the British returned to Mesopotamia having learned their lessons from that first failed invasion. This time, the British were better prepared and adequately supported. They tore through eastern Iraq before finally conquering Baghdad in March 1917. 
This was discussed in episode 19 of this series. The second major campaign took place in Sinai and mostly involved the British-Egyptian Expeditionary Force. The first battle in Sinai occurred in February 1915 with a failed Ottoman attack on the Suez Canal. Later that year, the British expanded their defensive radius beyond the Suez region and pushed several miles deeper into Sinai. That following spring, the British went on the offensive and eventually drove the Ottomans out of the Sinai Peninsula. This was also discussed in episode 19. The third and final major campaign in the Middle East was the Arab Revolt, which began in Mecca in June 1916. This revolt was led by Sharif Hussein, the Ottoman governor of Mecca. Sharif Hussein expected British funding and support to help him overthrow the Ottomans and establish a kingdom of his own. He was unaware of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, a secret pact between Britain and France to split the Middle East amongst themselves. The so-called Arab Revolt did not start well for Sharif Hussein. Very few Arabs actually joined his cause and most remained loyal to the Ottoman government. Those who did join had to be bribed with large payments courtesy of the British Treasury. With significant support from Allied forces, the rebels captured the Ottoman garrisons at Mecca, Ta'if, and Jeddah. In reality, the British did most of the fighting, then handed control of these cities over to Sharif Hussein. By the autumn of 1916, the Allies and the rebels controlled the Red Sea coast of Arabia. But the British knew they weren't going to get much from Sharif Hussein's forces. The rebels were fickle, undisciplined, and no match for professional Ottoman soldiers. If not for the British Navy and Muslim British Indian troops, the Arab revolt would have been crushed within a week. An Arab officer working for the British suggested guerrilla warfare would be the best use of the Arab rebels. They could distract the Ottomans while the British and French did the real fighting. In October 1916, two British intelligence officers, Ronald Storrs and Thomas Edward Lawrence, traveled to the Hejaz to explore this option. T.E. Lawrence of Arabia Most of us are familiar with Thomas Edward Lawrence because of the film Lawrence of Arabia, released in 1962. This movie, starring Peter O'Toole, Alec Guinness, and Anthony Quinn, tells an exaggerated story of T.E. Lawrence's role in the Arab Revolt. The real Thomas Edward Lawrence was a British spy and historian who dabbled in archaeology. Even before the war, he had spied on the Ottomans and the Germans under the guise of doing historical research. In late 1916, he and Ronald Storrs traveled to the Hejaz to see about turning the Arab revolt into a guerrilla war. That's where he met Sharif Hussein's son, Faisal Hussein. The two men became close friends and spent much of the next two years fighting the Ottomans together. 
Like others in British Egypt, T.E. Lawrence knew the Arab rebels could never stand against the Ottomans on their own. Instead, he and Faisal initially focused more on harassing Ottoman supply lines. One day, while trying to bribe Palestinian Arabs to join the revolt, Lawrence met an American entertainer named Lowell Thomas. Lowell Thomas had come to the Middle East in search of a good story to galvanize American support for the war. T.E. Lawrence's work with the Arab revolt was just the sort of story he was looking for. When Lowell Thomas returned home, he crafted a story where Lawrence led a ragtag group of Arab Bedouins against an oppressive Ottoman government. This story was based on Lowell Thomas's conversations with T.E. Lawrence. In typical American fanfare, he turned this story into an exotic traveling lecture series. These performances included moving pictures, musical orchestras, and dancing girls dressed in stereotypical Middle Eastern garb. After the war was over, Thomas's lecture series became a hit on both sides of the Atlantic. Before long, fiction mixed with reality and the world came to believe T.E. Lawrence was the leader of the Arab Revolt. And when Columbia Pictures released Lawrence of Arabia, the idea of Lawrence as the architect of the Arab Revolt was confirmed in the public's mind. This movie was based on Lowell Thomas's lecture series and T.E. Lawrence's memoirs. So most of what we know about T.E. Lawrence's involvement with the Arab Revolt comes from T.E. Lawrence himself, who admitted to stretching the truth in his memoirs. Unfortunately, we will probably never know the true extent of T.E. Lawrence's role. The lecture series and the movie turned him into a global celebrity and likely exaggerated his place in history. The Battle of Aqaba Even with British naval and military support, the Arab revolt was soon in danger of sputtering out. The British Navy had captured most of the Red Sea coast of the Arabian Peninsula. And with significant help from the British military, the Arab rebels captured Mecca, Jeddah, and Ta'if. However, Medina proved to be a much tougher nut to crack. The city was too far inland to be threatened by the British Navy. And the Ottoman garrison at Medina was connected to Damascus via a rail line maintaining a consistent flow of supplies and troops. Even with British support, the rebels could not attack Medina without sustaining heavy casualties. But the British did not really care because, in their opinion, the Arab revolt was just a sideshow. In the big scheme of things, it was not that important. So when T.E. Lawrence disappeared into the depths of Arabia from late 1916 to the spring of 1917, no one really noticed, until he notified the British office in Cairo of his intention to attack the Ottoman port at Aqaba. Aqaba is a port city at the northern tip of the Gulf of Aqaba. The Gulf of Aqaba is created by the eastern coast of the Sinai Peninsula and the northwestern coast of the Arabian Peninsula. 
accessing the port of Aqaba can be very difficult. The city is surrounded by mountains to the east and northwest and faces the sea to the south. There is just one thin strip of flat land providing ground access to the port. Lawrence paid Auda Abu Taye, the leader of a federation of northern Arab tribes, 10,000 British pounds sterling to join the Arab revolt. Auda was from the region and knew how to sneak up on the Ottoman fortress at Aqaba. Auda led the Arab revolt forces through the desolate valley of Wadi Sirahan, which today lies between the nations of Saudi Arabia and Jordan. This allowed them to keep out of sight of Ottoman scouts. Auda sent one group of fighters to attack an Ottoman supply depot near Amman, Jordan. This distracted the Ottomans, making them believe the Arabs were heading north towards Damascus or Aleppo. Instead, the main group of Arab fighters went south to attack Aqaba. The Ottomans expected any attack on Aqaba to come from the sea, so they had their big artillery pieces pointed in that direction. Considering how difficult it was to access Aqaba by land, they were surprised by the sudden appearance of the Arab forces. When T.E. Lawrence informed the British office in Cairo of his decision to attack Aqaba, they expressly forbade him from going forward with his plan. Lawrence ignored them and attacked anyway, forcing Cairo to send British warships to support him. The Ottoman garrison at Aqaba was small with only about 300 men. Meanwhile, there were nearly 5,000 Arabs fighting under Auda Abu Taye. The Ottomans could not fight against both the British warships and the Arabs at the same time. Ultimately, they surrendered to Auda Abu Taye on July 6, 1917. With the Ottoman fort in British and Arab hands, T.E. Lawrence decided to make the dangerous journey back to Cairo. He crossed the Sinai Peninsula by foot, which still contained pockets of Ottoman resistance. When Lawrence arrived in Cairo, dressed in traditional Arab clothes and covered in dust from his travels, he made a shocking sight. He gave a full report of the successful attack on Aqaba, taking credit for the victory, but leaving out the part played by Auda Abu Taye. The Battle of Aqaba changed things for the Arab Revolt. The capture of Aqaba opened up another route to the north, allowing the rebels to bypass Medina. The British began transporting thousands of Arab forces by sea from the Hejaz to Aqaba. From there, they could support British troop movements into Palestine, Syria, and Jordan. Stalemate at Gaza By February 1917, the British controlled most of the Sinai Peninsula. But due to the strong Ottoman defenses at Gaza, their progress had stalled out. Located on the southern coast of Palestine, Gaza was of strategic importance for the Central Powers. The Ottoman garrison at Gaza was not very large, but it maintained a grain mill and several herds of livestock. 
The German Navy also used Gaza to refuel and resupply their ships. The British Egyptian Expeditionary Force first attacked Gaza in March 1917 and made considerable gains. But their cavalry got delayed in the hills surrounding Gaza, allowing the Ottomans to strengthen their position and call in reinforcements. While waiting for the cavalry, the British infantry dug trenches in the desert on the outskirts of Gaza. However, they did not have enough water for a sustained engagement. Within a day of the initial attack, the British troops were out of water, making it impossible to carry on the assault. The British had no choice but to abandon their positions and retreat back into Sinai. The commanding officer of the Egyptian Expeditionary Force downplayed the retreat and convinced his superiors in Cairo that victory was inevitable. He did not tell them that his first attack had cost nearly 500 British lives compared to only 20 Ottoman casualties. Taking the officer at his word, Prime Minister Lloyd George urged his generals to authorize a second assault on Gaza. The British Prime Minister was riding high with the capture of Baghdad and he was eager to add Jerusalem to his list of conquests. The British assaulted Gaza again on April 17, 1917. This time, both sides were better prepared. The British brought along six Mark I tanks, the first time these machines were ever used in the Middle East. Since tank warfare was still very new, the British were hoping these hulking machines would frighten the Ottomans just like they had frightened the Germans. The land forces were supported by British and French naval and aerial bombardment. The Ottomans had also improved their position. They reinforced their defenses and dug a vast network of trenches supplemented by several concealed machine gun nests. Despite these improvements, the Ottomans found themselves reeling against the withering Allied attack. They lost considerable ground against the British and were overrun along several points in their defenses. The Ottomans faced a dizzying Allied assault that combined infantry, horses, tanks, ships, and planes. However, the complexity of making all these moving pieces work together was too much for the British. Before long, their assault was losing steam. By the second day of fighting, the Ottoman defenses had stiffened, inflicting severe casualties on the British. Some segments of the British assault were stopped dead in their tracks, while others were forced to retreat. This gave the Ottomans some breathing room and allowed them to divert resources to those locations where the British were close to breaking through. The Ottomans also benefited from the impatience of some of the British officers who refused to wait for aerial or cavalry support. As a result, the British often found themselves cut off and deep behind Ottoman lines. And the Ottomans were not impressed by the tanks. The Mark I tanks that were somewhat unreliable in Europe were completely useless in the sandy terrain of the Middle East. The sand mixed with the grease that lubricated the tank treads causing them to break down almost immediately. 
The Mark Ones were also poorly ventilated and had no cooling, so the hot desert sun turned them into ovens. And their size and slow pace made them easy targets for Ottoman artillery. The Ottoman defenders repelled every attempt the British made to move forward. In fact, most British casualties came from defending the positions they had gained on the first day of the battle. And once again, the British ran out of water. The Ottomans tried to take advantage of this situation and went on the offensive. But they were forced to turn back when Allied warplanes attacked them. After a few unsuccessful attempts, the Ottomans decided it was best to hold on to what they had. They brought in more troops and re-fortified their trenches and defenses. The British did the same, digging new trenches and fortifying their current positions as well. And that's how they remained for the next six months. Each side huddled in their trenches, occasionally trading shots with each other, but neither gaining any advantage. In the next episode, we'll continue our discussion of the war in Palestine as well as the impact of President Wilson's 14 points. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash WWI to find other episodes in this series. To learn more about the life of the last messenger of God, subscribe to our other show, The Prophet Muhammad Podcast. If you enjoyed these podcasts, please leave a five-star rating and review and share with your friends and family. The Islamic History Podcast is 100% listener-supported. You can support our work and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash islamichistory. Stay tuned for a brief clip from one of these premium shows. Or, to make a one-time donation, visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash donate. Special thanks to Brother Zulfi Kassiroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And in this series, we are going over the life of Salahuddin al-Ayyubi, known to the West as Saladin. In this episode, we are going to discuss the establishment and creation of the Crusader States, also known as Utremer, as well as the Muslim powers in the region at this time. But before we get into that, let's begin with a recap of where we are so far. The Crusades were launched in the year 1097. Over the next couple of years, thousands of Frankish warriors crossed the Bosporus Strait into modern-day Turkey intent on capturing Jerusalem. 
Along the way, the Crusaders captured Nicaea and Antioch before laying siege to Jerusalem. Jerusalem stood for about two days, but eventually fell to the Crusaders, leading to the wholesale slaughter of most of the city's Muslim and Jewish population. With Jerusalem in Frankish hands, most of the Crusaders returned to Europe, considering their quest complete. Those that remained now had to figure out how to hold on to their recent acquisitions. In this episode, we will discuss how the Crusader states were established and consolidated. We'll also briefly go over the various Muslim powers in the region. After Jerusalem fell in 1099, the Crusaders now held several Middle Eastern cities. However, these cities were not physically connected and were still surrounded by huge swaths of Muslim territory. In order to survive, the Crusaders would have to expand their territory and gain access to ports along the Mediterranean Sea. They would also need more land in order to acquire natural resources and provide a buffer to their newly conquered cities. This process of gradual expansion from the initially conquered cities led to the establishment of the Crusader States or Outremer as it was known to the Franks. Outremer comes from the French phrase meaning beyond the sea. There were four major Crusader States. The County of Edessa, founded in 1098. The Principality of Antioch, also founded in 1098. The Kingdom of Jerusalem, founded in 1099, and the County of Tripoli, founded in 1109. While there were many men involved with the establishment and expansion of Utremer, that is, the Crusader states, some were more prominent than others. Most of these men came over in the First Crusade that ultimately led to the conquest of Jerusalem. Of these men, the two most important were probably Baldwin of Bouillon and Tancred of Hauteville. 